we say that we have to be the optimists in dealing with the climate emergency. You know, we're working with entrepreneurs every day who are literally imagining what if we can solve this problem. So now is really not the time to be loosening the constraints in this space. For me, it was a real signal that government lacks vision when it comes to innovation. We're talking about systemic change. We're, we're not talking about picking one technology here and one technology there. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week I'm joined by Nikki D, the founder and CEO of Carbon 13, which describes itself as a venture builder for the climate emergency. Welcome, Nikki. Hello. Now, before we start talking about the climate, let's talk a bit about Carbon 13 what it is that you do and the firms that you support. Yeah, so Carbon 13 was a a concept that we started talking about in 2019. And it was really to get ventures who wanted to tackle greenhouse gas emissions off to a great start. And we believe that the way you do that was by bringing together the right founders and providing the right support. So since 2021, we have made 65 investments, and that's in ventures operating in every sector, each with the potential to mitigate 10 million tonnes of CO2e per year when at scale. Now, what for you are the sort of most exciting examples of tech that you've seen in this in this sphere? I know it's probably going to be hard for you to choose because um, they're all your babies. But, um, you know, if you were to sort of to single out a couple that you think are really going to make a big impact in this area, what, what would they be? Yeah, and it, it is tough to choose. And in many ways, that's that's the whole rationale behind what we're doing, because we think that to achieve net zero, you need some experimentation. And that's mm-hmm. around tech innovation, also business model innovation. So part of this is about not knowing what that answer is. So having multiple different perspectives on some of these challenges. But you ask for some favourites <laughs> or mm-hmm. some that are doing well. Always one that I, I come back to time and time again is a, a company called Blue Methane. And the reason I think they're exciting is that they are actually removing methane, which we know is a really powerful greenhouse gas. And they're removing that from bodies of water. Absolutely critical. And they've been making incredible progress. We also, in contrast to that, have another one called Keta which is one of the world's first carbon insurers, and they're trying to improve the integrity of carbon offsets. And and again, a very high flyer in our portfolio. Now, we're also just at the eve as we record, and when this episode goes out, it will actually be in the middle of the latest COP talks. What do you hope comes out of those talks taking place in the United Arab Emirates? Yeah, it's... (laughs) it's, uh, (laughs) Look, I think... Carbon 13 is in, we say that we have to be the optimists in 
in dealing with the climate emergency. You know, we're working with entrepreneurs every day who who are literally imagining what if we can solve this problem. The issue with COP, of course, is you've got all of the political issues that that really slow down progress on this agenda. And I know many people with the view that, yes, COP is a great networking opportunity. Yes, we want progress to be made. But it's also becoming a, a bit of a window shop for, for people to say, yes, you know, this is what I'm doing in this space. But but what does that actually mean? And how is that being translated into action? I think that's where there's a bit more scepticism. So we do, of course, need progress. But we've had these talks so many times. Are we going to expect the most significant progress from government or is it actually going to come from business? And and I think we're we're starting to see what we've been seeing for a little bit of time now, that governments move very slowly and we do need to speed that up. So what can business do that, that government can't? Yeah, well, it, it's it's an interesting one. And we've known about anthropogenic emissions and the effect that it has on the climate for a long time. I think one of the, the recent changes is that now that we have, I'd say, pretty much across the board, all stakeholders understanding the need to do something, that the conversation has really moved away from why should we do it to how do we do it? And with that, we have started to connect up impact with the commercial propositions. And that's really the key to unlocking scale up in some of these solutions. So we're seeing companies facing reputational issues, questions over how consumers and other customers respond to them. Obviously, we can see some direct penalties when you get your reporting wrong. And we've seen that in financial firms with ESG screening, as an example. We see other incentives like how people are tackling carbon offsetting, not just in the voluntary systems, but also in cap and trade systems like EU ETS. And do you want to explain what they are? So the EU ETS is the European cap and trade system for greenhouse gas emissions. And what we have seen is that has finally reached €100 Euros per tonne of CO2e. The point here is that there are many different price signals that are suddenly affecting the ability to tie impact some kind of commercial proposition. I think that's where we will start to see business moving quite quickly. Quickly is kind of a key, isn't it? We've seen the rhetoric yeah. move from, you know, we need to do something about this to the use of the word emergency you said that governments are slow. What is it that's going to make businesses any faster, do you think? That's the optimist in me talking. Um, <laughs> you have to <laughs> you have to hope. But I suppose there's something about, you know, I'm in the space of entrepreneurship and you look back at industrial transformation in years gone past and you can see very clearly the role of entrepreneurs in innovation in stimulating that change and also accelerating that change. And so that is why we're working with exactly those actors. And, and we know, you can see it in studies time and time again, that every time we're projecting what the cost of solar panels is going to be in five, 10 years time, or what the cost of lithium ion batteries is going to be, that we underestimate 
the pace of progress you can get as a result of innovation. And that's innovation really allowing different trajectories going forward to the ones that you anticipated. So so we know that we're bad at predicting innovation. We know that we're bad at understanding how quickly things can change. And that is why I still remain hopeful, because you're right, we really do need to accelerate. The great thing is we've seen it in the past in, in tech based innovation and business model innovation. Now, you've hinted that you're not particularly hopeful that much will come out of COP. But if you were to sort of hope for one thing, is there something that you would you would recommend that they kind of come to agreement on? Or is, is any agreement just a piece of paper and so therefore not really of much value? <sighs> yeah, that's it's a really, look, it's an interesting question. And I think there have been some challenges in the past around, you know, Article 6, which is where effectively the global north get to pay the global south for carbon offsetting. And we're still sorting out that mechanism. We know that there have been some recent developments on loss and damage. I don't think people quite appreciate how significant that was in this space in that we weren't just talking about adaptation anymore. We were actually acknowledging that climate change is causing significant loss and damage that's difficult to recover from and therefore we should be paying for that. We still need stronger commitments on fossil fuels. We still need stronger commitments and adherence to deforestation and nature-based solutions. There is nervousness in business that nature-based solutions are less predictable than perhaps some other solutions. And yet it is still the greatest bang for our buck when it comes to tackling greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a raft of things there. And then, of course, you have that really thorny issue of climate justice and tremendously difficult conversations, but any progress on that would be welcome. Can you explain a bit more what you mean by climate justice? Yeah, so, you know, who caused the emissions, who's experienced the effects of emissions, and who's involved in in the decision-making process about how we tackle this issue, who pays who, all of that is really tied up in this idea of climate justice. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. You mentioned fossil fuels. What did you make of the government in the UK's U-turn on its kind of green targets, which was earlier this year? So I would say that one of the greatest ways to get people innovating is to introduce a constraint. So now is really not the time to be loosening the constraints in this space. For me, it was a real signal that government lacks vision when it comes to innovation and if they had a bit more more vision and, and and belief, I think, in the ingenuity of of people, then they wouldn't have done that. We have an awful lot of entrepreneurs in the climate tech space in the UK. We have an awful lot of researchers looking at this problem. And my concern 
is that what will happen, these ideas and these people will end up going elsewhere instead of having impact right here and then exporting the knowledge, the lessons, the tech from having used it in the UK. Instead, what we're hearing time and time again from our entrepreneurs is that fortunately, we do have an amazing playground on our doorstep in Europe. And we know that they've been quite progressive. If you look at sustainable finance and and SFDR, so the Sustainable Finance Disclosures, that came ahead of the FCA in the UK really acting on that. We've got the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a whole can of worms. But again, we saw Europe lead and we're trying to catch up. So we have this incredible playground on our doorstep, which will allow entrepreneurs to finesse their propositions before they export them to the rest of the world. The issue is, is how accessible is that to people in the UK? And why don't we have that in the UK? Why does it feel like we're a little step behind? Although I have to say it's not all negative. We have some positives. In the entrepreneurship space, we saw some great revisions to things like SEIS, EIS funding. We finally sorted out the Horizon Grant funding and how we connect into the EU research. So, yeah, it's not all bad news, but but that point you raised, yeah, it it was a bit frustrating. And we're facing a potential change of government next year. What differences is that going to make, do you think, to government policy in this area? I happened to be sitting very near Ed Miliband when he was talking about Labour's approach to this space. And and, and look, he, he speaks very well about the need to act and the need to act quickly. I think, again, we just need to constantly make sure that that innovation is at the top of the list when people are thinking about what solutions are available. There are some questions coming in from the audience about how do we balance the infrastructure, not just the uh, financial costs, but the environmental costs associated with green infrastructure against the needs you know, to actually do that and enable the green transition. And... Um, He wasn't able to answer some of those questions as well as I might like. But yeah, I I have to feel optimistic that that Labour are really committed to acting more in this space. And you've mentioned the word innovation a lot. So what are the policies that you're really looking for from government of whatever colour that government may be that really is going to foster the right climate for these climate tech firms? This is a really complicated space. Wouldn't it be nice if there was just one? We are clear on when we want to achieve net zero. I think what's less clear is how we articulate those transition pathways and what they mean in terms of the different types of solutions that we need to connect in. You know, we're we're talking about systemic change. We're we're not talking about picking one technology here and one, one technology there. There are issues at the moment for example, we look at how we're organising retrofit in our housing and how do we organise, how do we enable people to afford these kinds of solutions? What about electricity prices? You know, suddenly you start thinking about electricity prices and gas prices and how that affects people's decision-making process. And then you look at organisations like the Microgeneration Certification Scheme, which was originally set up to help provide some credibility to renewable installers so people knew 
what they were buying. And now, is that really fit for purpose or is that slowing down the transition that we need? So, And that that's just one part of the economy. We could also be talking about hydrogen. Are we investing too much in some solutions? So I, I saw that the government rejected the findings of experts who said it's a bit of a nonsense to think about putting hydrogen into domestic boilers because you need those boilers. Even if you're doing a blend, it's going to take flipping ages to make sure that the infrastructure is ready. And that's not just the boilers, that's also the other associated infrastructure. So why did the government reject that? And of course, I think there's certain assumptions that we could make, and I I probably shouldn't make them here. But we do need, we do need the government to be listening to some of this expertise, providing more clarity with the sense of direction, but also making sure that they're connecting to the leading voices in this space. Look, cost is a huge issue, though, isn't it? You know, for consumers, many of whom now are very aware of their need to do more and would like to to do more. But, you know, when it comes to installing solar, there's a huge upfront cost that will take years to recoup. And that's putting people off. Is there anything that we can do about that? Yeah, and of course. So exactly, you need to make these solutions affordable. And that's where you're seeing, again, businesses step in to tackle that issue and coming up with innovative financing mechanisms. But also we need to have a look, you know, we've we've had one of our ventures, Kestrix, and before they reached their one year anniversary, they actually sourced their next round of funding. And what they describe is one of the barriers in this space is people don't understand what they even need. So they have proposed doing the Google heat maps for every single property in the world, starting off in the UK. And by having that information in such a visual way, it affects the decisions that we as consumers make. But of course, then you also have financial institutions being able to take a data-led approach to what are the interventions that we should be doing in this property and what, what's the likely benefit of that? And what does that mean in terms of you know structuring the, the access to finance? So that's what I mean. This isn't just about technological solutions. It's about finding a whole range of different things that enable these things to happen. And that's where we need lots of leading edge thinkers working together. And you mentioned carbon offsetting. I was talking to somebody the other day about blue carbon and how that could become the next thing. This is carbon from the sea now, as well as from the land. Yeah. But do you think carbon offsetting is a bit of a, a mess at the moment? It, it, it feels as if people haven't really got a grip on, on, on how it works as consumers. And as businesses, it feels like perhaps things aren't working quite as well as they should. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair, which is where I remind people like so so carbon offsetting at its simplest level is about making sure that money coming in is directed towards an area of impact where you're actually mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. That's quite a difficult thing to do because you've got to assess a situation and say, okay, So what would happen with this intervention and then what would have happened without it? And we saw the big piece earlier this year, the criticism of of Vera, where they had overestimated the rate of deforestation, which meant that they overestimated the amount of greenhouse gases that they were mitigating. So it is, it's, it's quite a complex thing. We've seen huge improvements in that space. 
But yes, some of it is still like the Wild West. We know that companies have been quite nervous and effectively over-insuring their position because they know that not all of the offsetting schemes that they've invested in are going to work out. But yeah, it's a classic example. And look, it's not the only mechanism of tying impact to finance. We've also seen carbon taxes. So people are very much experimenting in this. But fundamentally, the point comes down to we need to improve the data. We need to stop modelling, really start measuring what the real impact is and, and tying, yeah, tying the money to that. I've seen lots and lots of these startups with fascinating ideas, but it's the scaling up that, that seems to be the problem. How do they sort of go about doing that? I know that, that you're part of that solution. Yeah, so we're, we're seeing that with lots of different type of ventures. I think I mentioned that we work across different sectors. So we actually have some more digital focus ventures and some hard tech ventures, and they're all facing slightly different challenges, I would say. Part of our job as Carbon 13 is to try and optimise for scaling up. Some of the challenges are also the same as the opportunities, dare I say. It's a very entrepreneurial thing to say, and it's not quite that simple, of course. But I mentioned earlier it being a very dynamic uh, space, particularly when you're trying to understand the commercial opportunities. And that remains true. Fundamentally, these ventures at some point need to figure out their commercial proposition and something which which does scale up. And, and we are seeing that. So we've had some incredible progress with some of our ventures. But I say where the problems are, for those ventures that are, uh, require R&D, there's a bit of a gap between what we call technology readiness level three and five, which is where something is being tested in a lab but then needs to come out into a real-world environment. I would also say, and, and PwC recently had a report on this, that the climate tech investment isn't always targeting the areas that have the most emissions. So there are some hard to abate areas and we need to be directing some funding at that. That's a bit of a gap at the moment. Think of the hard to abate areas as obvious ones would be steel and and concrete. And then, of course, we've got some issues with how you actually engage with behaviour change. And sometimes investors are less, some prefer that, some don't like it as much. So it is, it's a really dynamic space. What's interesting to me is we've got impact investors with a particular interest in climate change. We also have generalists who now recognise the opportunity in this space. And then we have this new breed of climate tech investors who are looking for the ventures to be able to explain where the impact is and how they're going to scale. But yeah, it's uh, it's a complex space. The biggest thing that we could be doing in this country is making sure that we've got a progressive business ecosystem, policy and regulations as a playground for these ventures to scale. Now, you've talked all the way through about how complicated this scene is, but also how optimistic you remain. As we sort of finish, I just want to ask whether you are optimistic that we will reach net zero or whether it's already kind of getting too late to prevent this climate disaster that we're all facing. And I know that's a bit of a depressing question to finish on, but I'm hoping that your answer will cheer us up to some degree. Yeah, it, so 20 years ago, people in this space, and I was one of them, as you say, look, is will people only act when they start experiencing the effects? And of course, the big effect that we've seen is in the weather systems that we have and extreme events in, in, in that area. 
And we are seeing that across the board. You, you know, there's various different summaries of where we are with that. And of course, that's prompting a whole different swathe of, of innovation where we are trying to adapt, not just to a one in 100 year event, but maybe a one in 10 year event, as an example. But I suppose the optimism comes from if you look back previously and you will have a trickle of activity. So many people with the mobile phone, for some of us, we remember those great big bricks and you almost needed a car to move the brick. Uh, But some people loved it. And I've got a mobile phone, it's in my car. And then there was the brick in the bag. And then it was just, you know, a brick in your hand. And suddenly we've got a computer that we carry around in our our pocket. There was a long time we had this activity and then you had this sudden acceleration. So that, I think, is the cause for optimism, that when you have all of the different things that come together, we know that suddenly people start buying stuff, the effects on the system, you get these feedback loops happening and things can change quickly. And surely that's what we uh, what, what we can try and be optimistic about in this space. Let's hope so. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining me. But that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTM podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Do remember you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and X, as it's now called, where you can also find me. And I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en gb to find out how innovation needs different. Thank you.